Hello and welcome back to the podcast. I post episodes weekly on Tuesdays on pretty much whatever I like. So welcome. Follow me on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook and on LinkedIn at a Ugandan babe or one word. Now, a few days ago I was minding my business on Twitter as I do. Well, sometimes I'm minding other people's business but don't mind that. I noticed people that I follow were writing very charged and upset tweets about a certain Twitter space. And then that space popped up on my feed. Now, I'm very deliberate about how I curate my Twitter feed because it's my favorite social media platform. I want it to be good vibes only, or at least mostly good vibes. So I became curious. Now, for those of you who don't know, a Twitter space is kind of like a chat room. It's similar to another app called Clubhouse, which became very popular in the summer of 2020, in the thick of the pandemic, or the first wave anyway. I wonder what happened to it. Anyway, users can host a discussion on any topic under the sun, and anyone can listen in or be invited onto a virtual stage to share their views on said topic. And all of this happens on Twitter. And it's becoming actually a very popular feature. So anyway, I clicked into the space and it was called hashtag secure the tribe. And the question that had been posed by the host was, how does immigration benefit black Americans? Now, (laughs) already that's a controversial question, right? But I clicked in and it was being run by a group of black Americans. And it had already been going on for a while at that point, right? Maybe an hour. So I was a bit late, but that's what happens. You can click in or click out of a space at your leisure, right? By the time I arrived, it was charged. Tensions were high. Insults were being bandied about. The whole tone of it was extremely hostile. The host and his mates were adamant that they don't identify with Africa and the rest of the African or Black diaspora and they do not support immigration in general. They believe that immigration actively harms Americans and especially black Americans. They feel that it puts them at a disadvantage. I got that impression and I could be wrong because I didn't stay for the whole duration. It was long, it was like 20 hours. (laughs) But for the time I was there, the hosts seemed to be focusing the discussion on immigration from Africa and the rest of the non-American black diaspora because that is who they were expecting the majority of their audience to be. But at some point, they clarified that they do not support immigration from anywhere, whether Africa and the rest of the Black Dias, Asia, Europe, anywhere. They want zero immigration into America. So you can imagine how charged the space became because you had black people from everywhere. The host and his mates kept inviting people up to the virtual stage to answer the question, how does immigration benefit black Americans? But it became clear quite quickly that they were not really expecting or looking for a satisfactory answer. It was very much come up here, say what you want to say, but we're not really listening because we have already decided that immigration doesn't benefit Americans in general and specifically and egregiously black Americans. And they have a very specific definition for what black Americans mean, which we'll, you know, we will get into later. So it went on like that for a while. <laughs> and at first, because I had already been influenced by the enraged tweets of people that I follow, mostly black British voices, 
I entered the space with a negative attitude thinking, who are these ignorant Americans and why are they sounding like UKIPers? For those of you who don't know, UKIP stands for the UK Independence Party, white supremacist, extremely racist and xenophobic party that was founded by the grifter and wasteman Nigel Farage. He was one of the faces of Brexit. So I was thinking, what's the difference between you guys and UKIP? The language they were using was extremely xenophobic and just fueled by rage. I listened for a while and I even tried to get onto the virtual stage, but <laughs> Americans love a cash up. <laughs> they kept saying there's a long queue. So if you want to cut the queue and have the chance to say something on the virtual stage, you have to pay, you have to cash up us. And the way my bank account is currently set up, <laughs> I just wasn't in a position to. So I kept raising my hand, but eventually I just gave up and listened in. In the end, I stuck around for about an hour. And that hour was very educational and illuminating. I came in extremely critical of the Americans. But by the end, the needle had moved. And after doing some reading, I learned some shocking facts, which I will expand on in the last part of this episode. So let's set this all up. Now, to be clear, I do not agree with the majority of the points and the overall ideology that the Black American hosts expressed. Most of it was completely ahistorical, inaccurate, just plain old wrong, and very much in the vein of white supremacist talking points. And coming from Black Americans, Black Americans, it was extremely jarring. So I didn't agree with the vast majority of what they said, but I learned a lot. And the conversation opened my eyes to a few things which we are going to discuss in the course of this episode. Let's start with the three main points that I think the hosts got wrong from the hour or so I spent in the space. First off is this idea they have that the term black Americans, who they refer to as foundational black Americans, and I will do the same going forward just for simplicity, that that term black Americans or black in America should be reserved for those descended from enslaved Africans. So I will refer to them as foundational black Americans or native black Americans or native black Europeans if I extend the discussion outside of America to Europe. So they believe that everyone else, all other black people, those immigrating from Africa and the non-American diaspora like Europe, the Caribbean or elsewhere, are not black and should not call themselves black. They are Africans or something else, but they are not black. They are certainly not black Americans. The hosts were adamant that black is a category that the slavers created specifically for the enslaved black Americans and their descendants. So if you are of African descent, but immigrating from Africa, Europe, the Caribbean, or anywhere else after the slave era, you're not black or black American, and you have no right to call yourself that. <laughs> Which was extremely wild to hear. Listeners from the Caribbean were confused. Us African descendants in Europe and elsewhere were baffled. Africans in Africa were bewildered. There was just confusion and chaos in the space. 
every time that point was raised, thinking, what the hell are these Americans smoking? Because that's some good shit. Now, the reason they kept saying this was as a precursor to the wider point they were trying to make, which is that we are not the same, which we will get into later in detail because I partly agree with that statement. But they were basically saying foundational black Americans are separate from the rest of us. They said when the rest of us go to America, we latch onto them and their identity, ride their coattails, take advantage of the benefits that should be theirs, things like affirmative action or positive discrimination quarters around education and job opportunities. So we camouflage under the black American identity and steal the opportunities meant for foundational black Americans, those descended from enslaved people who actually are the ones that deserve those benefits. Not as Africans and Africa adjacent charlatans is what they were saying. <laughs> that was their overall message. Hence why I have said it was very xenophobic and very UKIP adjacent. Now, if you're African descended from Africa, you know, elsewhere in the non-American diaspora, this won't make any kind of goddamn sense to you. Yes, in Africa, for the most part, we do not actively go, go around thinking of ourselves as black because we are mostly tribal. But being racialized as black is hardly a foreign concept to us. And it is certainly the daily reality for, say, South Africans, black Europeans, and black Caribbean people. Bambi, my black Asians, I'm sorry. We, my, my, yeah, black Asians, I'm so sorry. We always forget about you, but we know black people are all over the world. So... For these foundational black Americans to say we cannot and should not classify ourselves as black is completely ahistorical. And it's not even that we want to call ourselves black, yeah? We have been racialized as black by a white supremacist system. We don't have a choice in this. I mean, you can wake up and decide to shed the black label all day every day, but when you need to fill out a job application, a university application, a medical form, or you have a run-in with the police, you will inevitably be faced with this reality. Every time I have to complete a form, I have to indicate whether I am black or black African or some variation of that. So that whole point is nonsensical and just not our lived experience. The second point the hosts got wrong was their argument that we have not suffered like they have under white supremacy. That white supremacy is irrelevant and non-existent outside of America. <laughs> Again, completely ahistorical. And if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, I have addressed this over and over. I will not be repeating myself. You can listen to my horseshoe theory on neocolonialism as an introduction if you're unfamiliar with my point on this, my viewpoint on this. The third point they got wrong is that in, eco in economic terms, right? Going back to their question, how does immigration benefit um, black Americans? The evidence is clear that immigration is a net benefit. Immigrants are not leeches. In fact, they pay into the economy far more than they take out. Now, we can have a discussion on the other impacts that significant immigration will have on, say, the cultural makeup of countries or whatever, but that's not what was under discussion on this Twitter space. So, um, the final point they got wrong, um, and I have previously had expressed by Foundation of Black Americans as an explanation for their rage towards the rest of us black people, especially Africans, is the idea that their African ancestors sold them into slavery. But it's not as simple as that. 
In some instances, yes, this did happen for profit motives. But in the vast majority of cases, this was simply not true. Africans didn't get a choice. And I touch on this in my episode on Kavalega. The Arabs and Europeans used force. They used violence. They used their superior, their superior military might to take enslaved Africans or force those that remained to give others up into slavery. So there are contextual reasons as to why Africans, if they did, got involved in the slave trade, which are complex and only a dedicated study of a history that hasn't been whitewashed by the Caucasians will bear this out. So those were my main points of contention from the space. But what did they get right? First off, one of the reasons the hosts were so enraged and why they want separation between foundational black Americans and the rest of us is that the host stated that during the civil rights era in the 60s and 70s, when black Americans and the Pan-African movement worked together to agitate for equality, back then, they truly believed that we were for them. So us non-American black people, and they were happy to work with us for a perceived common good. But then they found that over time, the attitudes among especially Africans and Caribbean people was very contemptuous and derisive. They found that Africans looked down on the foundation of black Americans, despised their culture, the way they spoke, even name calling them. And I know that the reverse is true, but we're talking about their perspective. So apparently with time, their view changed and they stopped seeing us as the allies we claim to be. So some of them, like the people on this call, the hosts for this space, have decided to go their own way and leave us behind. I partly agree with this analysis. And I say partly because as a black woman born and raised in Africa and having lived in Europe for a while, my alliance has always been with other black people in the diaspora, including black Americans. And I believe that this is true for the vast majority of us. And it's not even about race, loyalty, or whatever you want to call it. It's because I fundamentally believe in racial equality. So my solidarity has always been with uh, black communities, POC communities, you know, wherever they may be, as long as it, it makes sense. Yeah, the same applies for all other equality movements, whether it's other racial mi minorities, feminism, religious, or LGBTQ. But I have also observed that many Africans, whether working or middle class, will go to the West and look down on native black people, whether in Europe or America. And it's based on white supremacist propaganda that they have swallowed hook, line, and sinker. And I've seen that with people that I know personally. Some of us will go to the West and start chatting a lot of shit. You know, we judge them for their quote-unquote ghetto accents, for their quote-unquote gang culture, for seemingly, seemingly being unable to thrive or pull themselves up by their bootstraps in what we perceive as a land full of opportunities. I have had this sentiment expressed by people that I know and on more than one occasion. There is definitely a feeling of superiority there. Forgetting that many of us come from middle class or upper middle class African homes. And I use that term lightly <laughs> because many of us may think of ourselves as middle class, but are just a few paychecks 
or one health crisis away from abject poverty. So, we have faced the challenges of colonialism and neocolonialism, but it's not the same experience as native black Americans or native black Europeans or native black Asians, bless them. So we go to America and see people who have grown up in the projects or in council estates if you're in Britain, whose ancestors faced slavery, then Jim Crow, then redlining, then the prison industrial complex, then police brutality, wind rush if you're in Britain, and on and on and on. Yes, you're black and the system will not make the distinction, but it's not the same experience at all. There are differences, not least of which is potentially a class distinction, which is not to say poor Africans don't immigrate and hustle and beat the system. Sometimes they do. And similarly, many foundational black Americans are highly educated and have built up wealth, etc. But many Africans who immigrate to the West haven't faced the same circumstances of privation as many of the native blacks. Many have had access to decent, a decent standard of education. And again, there will of course be exceptions, but broadly speaking, we're not having the same experience. In addition, we can't discount the difference in mentality where African immigrants have been sold this dream of the West as the land of opportunity. And so we arrive with a lot of drive, optimism, and you know, without a, that chip on the shoulder from being racialized as black all our lives. Many of us grew up in enabling environments where we were the best and the brightest, and most of our role models looked like us. And not, not so with many native black Americans or black Europeans or black Asians who have the immediate painful history of discrimination in front of them all the time, you know, who may have been beat down by the system and denied opportunities at every single turn based on their race. Africa was colonized and it is currently undergoing neocolonialism, which is probably more insidious. It's a related but different demon. It's not exactly the same as the experience of native black Americans, black Europeans, black Asians, and it's different in some important ways. One of the questions that hosts were using to weed out haters and identify who they might listen to and consider an ally was asking whether speakers supported the idea of foundational black Americans being paid reparations by the US federal government. Those of you who don't know, in this context, the idea is that the US federal government should make amends by providing payment or some other assistance to the descendants of enslaved black Americans in recognition of all the wealth that their ancestors built that was stolen and all the centuries of discrimination and privation that has left them at a clear economic disadvantage. Now, for me personally, this has always been a no-brainer. <laughs> Of course they should get reparations. It's easy to identify the chain of wealth that they built. And any flattering about, oh, how will you identify that descendants is just a distraction. If the political will is there, it can be done. And it doesn't even have to be direct payouts. You know, it can be significant investment in schools, hospitals, transportation, and other facilities and infrastructure in the areas that have been deprived for centuries. I also believe Africa and the rest of the diaspora deserves reparations from the European colonizers, not least of which is returning all our stolen artifacts currently sitting in their museums and ditching the predatory economic policies that serve to funnel wealth to the West. 
But that's a separate though related conversation. And there is no need to conflate the two, though they can certainly travel in tandem as they are equally valid. So every time a speaker disputed the host's right to reparations, <laughs> they saw red and kicked them off the stage. And I didn't blame them one bit for that. Imagine having the audacity of an African carrying themselves to the West and then lecturing native black Americans and Europeans about whether they deserve reparations. Are you okay? You can't be okay. The audacity. I believe that the majority of us non-American black diaspora agree with the host on this point, but there were a few mad hatters. What I noticed was that many Africans and black British people were extremely condescending to the foundation of black American hosts, which of course they noticed and called out. It was disappointing though admittedly understandable given the extremely xenophobic language being used, but to me it was very reminiscent of the white supremacist attitudes we have observed where black Americans, so foundational black Americans are ridiculed for their culture, including their music, the way they speak, you know, the quote-unquote black scent. And yet this same culture gets appropriated and exploited by non-black Americans and the rest of the world. And it becomes the popular culture, whether it's pop music, you know, the language of social media discourse, what, you know, people wrongly call Twitter speak. It's not Twitter speak, it's African-American vernacular English. Yeah, their fashion aesthetic and on and on and on. So it is acceptable coming from anyone except the originators, foundation of black Americans themselves. So I understand their rage. Another point they kept making which didn't quite land was the fact that there was no recognition, no thanks from the black diaspora for the blood, sweat and tears that they poured into the civil rights movement, which quite literally opened the doors for everyone else to immigrate to America. They fought for that, or their ancestors fought for that. And yet every time the host raised it, it was greeted with, you know, skepticism. It was a lukewarm reception. Until I think it was one white Latino woman who finally got up onto the stage to thank them, but got ridiculed on the timeline for quote-unquote sucking up to them. But I think it was a more than valid point because before 1965, the national origins formula had been established in the 1920s to preserve American homogeneity by promoting immigration from only Northwestern Europe. But during the 1960s, at the height of the civil rights movement, this approach increasingly, increasingly came under attack for being you know, racially discriminatory, obviously. So this led to the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965 as a federal law being signed by President Lyndon B. Johnson, abolishing the de facto discrimination against Southern and Eastern Europeans, Asians, as well as other non-Western European ethnic groups. So foundational Black Americans quite literally fought, bled, and died for that to become a reality. They had support, yes, but it was mainly their work that brought, brought that to bear. They deserve their flowers. Let's give them to them. <laughs> Another point that one of the hosts made was that he insisted he was Native American. The timeline went up in flames over this and they dragged him 12 ways to Sunday with people reposting one of his pictures and claiming he looked like he was from their specific village in Africa. <laughs> 
It was understood that he was trying to deny his connection to the continent and was therefore delusional if he believed that his ancestors were not from Africa. But after I'd listened for a while, I don't think that's exactly what he was saying. And in fact, those things could both be true. His ancestors could have been from Africa and he could simultaneously be Native American. Which sounds confusing, but let me explain. And this brings me to the last and the most interesting part of this journey for me personally. So, is there any validity to the claim by some black Americans that they are in fact Native Americans? Well, more and more evidence is being unearthed all the time that actually Africans were sailing across the Atlantic to the Americas thousands of years before Christopher Columbus. That Italian explorer, navigator and colonizer who opened the way for the widespread European exploration and colonization of the Americas. And that Africans sailing to the Americas even predate the birth of Christ. Here are some examples of this evidence from an article that I will link in the description box. The first is from the European colonizers themselves. According to renowned American historian and linguist Leo Wiener of Harvard University, one of the strongest pieces of evidence to support the fact that black people sailed to America before Christopher Columbus was a journal entry from Columbus himself. In Wiener's book, Africa and the Discovery of America, he explains that Columbus noted in his journal that the Native Americans confirmed, quote, black-skinned people had come from the southeast in boats trading in gold-tipped spears. In addition, Christopher Columbus wasn't the only European explorer who made note of an African pres uh, presence in the Americas upon his, his arrival. Historians revealed that at least a dozen other explorers, including Vasco Nunez de Balboa, also made record of seeing quote-unquote Negroes when they reached the New World. The accounts match up with the reports from the natives in Mexico. Nicolas Leon, an eminent Mexican authority, recorded the oral traditions of his people and ultimately kept track of a key piece of evidence that black people made it to the New World far before their European counterparts. His reports revealed accounts from natives saying, quote, the oldest inhabitants of Mexico were blacks. There have also been many instances of archaeologists discovering skulls and skeletons that they believed clearly belonged to people of African descent. Polish professor Andrzej Boczynski revealed the discovery of African skulls at Olmec sites in Tlatliko, <laughs> Cerro de las Mesas, and Monte Alban. Forgive me. Even more ancient African skeletons that would clearly predate Columbus' arrival in the Americas were discovered throughout Central America and South America, with some even being unearthed in what is now California. There are also similarities in Native American and African religions, which suggest that Africans had to have had early contact with the Native Americans by sailing to the New World. So before Columbus stumbled upon the Native Americans' land, there were prominent figures of deities with dark skin and coarse hair throughout their religion. And today, many surviving portraits reveal these deities were clearly crafted in the likeness of Africans. 
Historians also point to the wall paintings in caves in South America that depict the ancient Egyptian, quote, opening of the mouth and cross libation rituals. Then there are also the gigantic stone heads in central, um, in central Mexico um, from the Olmec civilization, the first significant civilization in Mesoamerica and deemed, quote, the mother culture of Mexico by some historians. This civilization dominated by Africans is best known for the colossal carved heads in central Mexico that serve as even more evidence that Africans sailed to the new world before Columbus. Ancient African historian Professor Van Setima explained that heads are clearly crafted that these heads are clearly crafted in the likeness of Africans and the same civilization that created these giant heads was also responsible for introducing written language, arts, sophisticated astronomy and mathematics to Mesoamerican civilization. Then you have the recent discovery of American narcotics in Egyptian mummies. Archaeologists have discovered the presence of narcotics only known to be derived from American plants in ancient Egyptian mummies. These substances included South American cocaine and nicotine, and researchers have suggested that such compounds made their way to Africa through transatlantic trade that would predate Columbus' arrival by thousands of years. According to Dr. David Imhotep, the author behind the book, the first Americans were Africans documented evidence. Egyptian artifacts found across North America from the Alonguin writings on the East Coast to the artifacts and Egyptian place names in the Grand Canyon are all signs of an early arrival in the Americas by Africans. This is also paired with a much earlier account of black people with incredible skills at sea. Back in 445 BC, the Greek historian Herodotus wrote of King Ramesses III leading a team of Africans at sea with outstanding, with astounding, ah, the word has played me, with astounding seafaring and navigational skills. Together, both accounts would point to Africans sailing over to the New World before Columbus. The ancient pyramids are another clue. Constructing pyramids was a highly specialized and complicated task that took the ancient Egyptians a lot of time to master. In ancient Egypt, there are signs of progression from the original steeped pyramid of Djosa to the more sophisticated pyramids that now stand at Giza. According to historians, it would be impossible for any group of people to have built those same complex pyramids without going through the same progression. Professor Everett Borders noted the presence of completed pyramids in La Venta in Mexico, but the unusual absence of, an, of any earlier forms of the pyramids. According to Borders, it's a sign that Africans, having already mastered the construction of pyramids in Egypt, sailed over to the New World and constructed these dual-purpose tombs and temples in the Americas. And for those about to shout that ancient Egyptians were not black, <laughs> Please note that mainstream scholars reject the notion that Egypt was a black or white civilization. They maintain that despite the phenotypic diversity of ancient and present-day Egyptians, applying modern notions of black or white races to them is inaccurate. Scholars reject the notion implicit in the notion of a black or white Egyptian hypothesis that ancient Egypt was racially homogenous. Instead, skin color varied between the peoples of Lower Egypt, Upper Egypt, and Nubia, who in various eras rose to power in ancient Egypt. 
Moreover, most scholars believe that Egyptians in antiquity looked pretty much as they look today, with a gradation of darker shades towards the Sudan. So the consensus among the experts is that within Egyptian history, despite multiple foreign invasions, the demographics were not shifted by large migration. So shut up. <laughs> there were black people in ancient Egypt as there are today. So finally, we have the fact that Africans were master shipbuilders. Some people insist that Africans couldn't have made it to the new world first simply because they don't have the skill and resources to sail across the Atlantic. As it turns out, that's completely false. Historians have discovered evidence that suggests Africans were masters at building ships and that it was actually a part of their tradition. Shipbuilding and sailing are over 2,000 years old in the Sahara, and cave wall paintings of ancient ships were displayed in the National Geographic magazine years ago. With those shipbuilding skills and the navigation skills that were noted by other historians of the time, the myth that Africans wouldn't have been able to sail to the New World becomes officially debunked. As Dr. Julian Whitewright, a maritime archaeologist at the University of Southampton explained, the voyage from Africa on ancient ships was quite a plausible undertaking based on the capabilities of the vessels of the period and historical material stating that it took place. So, Africans sailed to the Americas thousands of years ago. We were just not colonizers. So, there was a long history of trade by sea. And according to Paul Alfred Barton, the author of A History of the African Olmecs, Black Civilizations of America from Prehistoric Times to the Prison Era, ancient kingdoms in West Africa have a long history of trade by sail, which made it all the more likely that they eventually expanded their trade to the Americas. So while the Sahara is a dry desert today, its past as a lake-filled, wet and fertile place has been well documented. And African ships often crossed these large lakes to get from place to place and traded with other African civilizations along the way. After expanding their trade to the Americas, they certainly made their mark as things like African native cotton were soon being discovered all across North America. So, <laughs> all of that whole long spiel to say, obviously I can't speak to the heritage of the host who claimed he was Native American, but there is a growing body of evidence to suggest that some black Africans, if their ancestors survived their Euro European genocide, could very well have as much right to call themselves Native American as anyone else. But like everything else, this history has been whitewashed and buried. So, perhaps the Twitter naysayers were the ignorant ones on this particular point. So, by the end of my time in that Twitter space, my anger and irritation at the hosts had significantly shifted. I could see beyond the rage to the deep hurt and resentment that is not completely unfounded. I could see the privilege that many Africans have over foundational Black Americans, based on, for example, class, where applicable. So their rage and anger is steeped in ignorance, but I believe a huge part of it is being ignorant of your ignorance, which can often be tied to a white supremacist system that has been effectively used to rob them of opportunities for education and exposure. I hope that doesn't sound patronizing. It's genuinely not meant to be. And of course, I know that many foundational black Americans are highly educated and knowledgeable of their history and that of the African diaspora. Fortunately for many of us, the space was saved by a voice of reason, the baby girl Kelechi Okafor. 
who has been blessed by God and the ancestors with a gift for passing and articulating complex analysis on racial dynamics and the, way, the ways in which white supremacist patriarchy impact different communities. That woman is an actual gem. She got onto the stage and although she had feelings, right, about what had been said and disagreed, I'm sure, vehemently on many points, because of the gifting and calling that she honors, that's not the energy she came with. She tore singlets for sure and told people about themselves, but most importantly, she communicated and educated. The hosts had no choice but to hear her out and had no rebuttal. So she actually had an impact. And that's an energy that I personally believe in. That is an energy that can actually build bridges between Africans and black people in the rest of the diaspora. As always, thanks for listening. Give us a like and subscribe to the channel if you enjoyed this episode and follow me on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and on LinkedIn at a Ugandan babe to continue the conversation. I hope you'll be back for the next one. Goodbye for now.